Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and Bach, and Chagall, and Caesar <laughs> Churchill, and a hundred others you've never heard of. <laughs> oh, that is such an obvious joke for the intro, and I'm so upset I didn't think of it. <laughs> Um, and I'm Valerie Hoagland and Glenn we have four hours to record this podcast but in that time I'm going to need you to do a waltz and solve a mystery about whether or not I'm human yeah you mean basically do everything except the podcast yeah like what this this episode right (laughs) yes right well this episode is Requiem for Methuselah which is the the 21st episode of season three this originally aired on uh on February 14th 1969 it is actually the Valentine's Day episode, which I didn't know, you know, the five or six times I watched this to prepare for it until I was looking up the date to say it right now. It was like, oh, maybe that makes some sense that this is the Valentine's Day episode. This is, I mean, it was already an interesting lesson on love. It's even <laughs> further complicated by the fact that it was supposed to be some sort of happy lesson on love, maybe. Right. Um, but for me, the relevant fact here is 1969 because... Scotty's sideburns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, this episode was written by Jerome Bixby and directed by Murray Golden. And of course, this is the first episode that we're doing from a, a new batch of episodes selected by our Patreon supporters. This one came in first and then coming in second. So the other one that we'll do was the, the Voyager episode, Memorial. And what did not make it was the Deep Space Nine episode featuring Prince Humberdink, uh, Rivals, though <laughs> <laughs> uh, that missed it only by one vote. And then again, the Enterprise episode, Dear Doctor, did not make it, came in dead last, did get votes. You know, it's not like nobody's voting for it, but it is feeling like we may never do another episode of Enterprise again until that's all that's left, in which case we just become an Enterprise episode, an Enterprise podcast. But, you know, that's like 20 years from now. But Dear Doctor is such a good episode. Well, our listeners have spoken. So uh, so we'll, we'll see if we ever get to if we ever get to do that. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't say things that even further alienate me from our fan base. Um, but everybody knows we like Enterprise. Well, I think it could be a good I think it'd be a good shtick that uh, we want to do Enterprise so badly and they won't let us. I'm I'm happy with that. Yeah, if this is our fans trolling us, then I, I accept it. Um, but I stand by the fact that Dear Doctor is is a good episode. Glenn, this is fascinating because uh, when did our listeners pick this as the top episode? When was that like? When did the poll come out with this on top? Right. It was so it was many months ago. Many months ago as we're recording this, so it was close to actually a year before this is going out on the air. And of course, the question that you're really asking is uh, what's the relationship between our present plague here on real earth and the plague of the 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 story? And the answer is is none, but it's interesting that we're going to be talking about that today. Yeah, I, I mean, very hard to miss that correlation. And it, uh, one thing I've been experiencing, actually, I don't know if you have, Glenn, is that you know, sometimes I seek it out intentionally, like, you know, I'm a giant nerd and I'm rereading the Decameron, uh, which seems uh, <laughs> apt for the time. But I'm also noticing in a lot of the television entertainment that I consume that these themes that we're living through right now as we record in, in mid-May 2020 um, are cropping up all over the place in the art and entertainment that I consume. And of course, you know, there is a plague. Uh, I mean, Dear Doctor, even if that had been selected as well, right, um, is is a theme you see a lot in, in Trek. So, you know, something they deal with a lot 
Yeah, I guess the odds were actually pretty high that we were going to be dealing with some kind of plague, that we weren't thinking about it that way. And, uh, you know, behind the scenes, you know, we have had to delay the recording of this episode because of the way that our lives have been shaped by uh, the lockdown or having to go into to quarantine. But I did my first watch of this knowing that we were going to do it actually on the first day that Philadelphia was getting shut down, which uh, happened to be my wedding anniversary, Elizabeth and I's wedding anniversary. <laughs> and in fact, so we, we had been intending to go go out. Uh, Her parents were here visiting uh, so they could babysit so that we could go out and celebrate our anniversary. We're not able to do that that night. So what we did was sit on our couch alone for the first time in months and we watched this episode. And at that point, it didn't feel like anything to me. But when I watched this again this week, uh, now that we are two months into this, wow, did that stand out to me. I was and, and just really questioning the responses, the emotional responses that people are having to the fact that there's a pandemic on the enterprise or or epidemic, I guess, really is what we should be saying for uh, being localized to the enterprise. But the fact that there's a plague on the enterprise, I'm like, that's not the right emotional response to that information at all. Nobody is responding emotionally appropriately no. to anything <laughs> except for Spock. Um Except for Spock, which is just always true, even though he's always getting flack for not, you know, having emotions. Um, He often is the one responding emotionally appropriately. Um, Also, Glenn, you know, this is a Valentine's Day episode, so it makes sense that you watched it on your wedding anniversary. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's, that's all. It's all come full circle. Well, we, we we're dancing around it, so let's let's get into the the actual episode. So the the Enterprise is in the grip of a raging epidemic. It's Rigelian fever. It's already killed three members of the crew. Many others are sick, and if they don't find a cure in four hours, then the whole crew is going to be dead. And what they need in order to cure the Rigelian fever is a, a mineral called Ritalin, which they have found on a planet in the Omega system. And when Kirk, Bones, and Spock beam down to the planet to get the cure, they're attacked by a floating robot killing machine, which is then stopped by a dude who is clearly cosplaying as a Byzantine emperor, which is totally cool, uh, except that, you know, this planet is supposed to be uninhabited and they didn't get any life signs. Uh, His name is Flint, Mr. Flint, sometimes he's called, and he wants them to get out of here. In fact, if they don't leave, he's going to kill them, Uh, even though Kirk says that they'll pay, they'll trade, or they'll work for the Rytalon, whatever it takes, uh, and that might include taking it by force if necessary. And that is where we get the theme music. So, so first thing I want to say here, Valerie, since we've talked about the plagueness already, Flint's outfit, this is my new favorite Star Trek costume. I have to get one. It's actually pretty good. I mean, I think we see yeah. we see uh, costumes like this. It's interesting that, uh, I mean, I think we see a lot of like Shakespearean type costumes that end up reading pretty similar um, as well, though you as the medievalist can um, tear me apart for comparing <laughs> these costumes. Um, but yeah, there are a couple things. Oh, there were this episode, Glenn, this episode, like <laughs> I, there were multiple times, you know, I was watching this alone. Um, there were just multiple times where I was talking out loud to myself where like, where I'd be like, oh, they're still waltzing or geez, like I just, it is, there's a lot to comment on. But in this first scene here, um, a couple things stand out. One is Rigelian fever. Now, of course, we cannot stop talking about Enterprise. This is uh, our curse, but is something that comes back in two Enterprise episodes, uh, Dead Stop and Cold Station 12. Um, so that's kind of interesting as as well. And there are lots of different like plagues and, and fevers and diseases that come through lots of different Trek episodes. Um, but that's an interesting connection there if anyone would want to check out those episodes. 
But I noticed a couple things here. One, why are Kirk, Spock, and Bones seemingly 0% afraid of this death robot? Like, they move gently to the side. They don't hide behind anything, even though it's pretty clear it could kill them. I really don't understand. Yeah, you're you're already pointing to some things that I think are really problematic about this episode, which is the directing. The directing of this is not good. The 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 waltz going on for so long is really jarring, mostly because the camera angles are really terrible. And I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves, dear listeners. I'm sorry, but the 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 camera angles are very strange for a lot of things that are going on, and it just seems like a simple decision to put a styrofoam boulder in front of them. Like that would have been a real easy thing to do. And the third season, right, is pretty notorious for having had a slashed budget. Uh, also for the fact that Shatner was uh, phoning it in isn't right, but Shatner was actively looking for other work. You know, They knew they weren't coming back and Shatner was going out on auditions a lot. And so he didn't always know his lines. Uh, having watched this in high definition on a fairly large screen, it's also pretty clear he's not been sleeping. Like it just does not <laughs> yeah. physically look good, right? So there's all, and this is really late in the third season too, right? So there just are all these production issues with the third season. And of course, you know, one of the reasons that this made it onto the ballot is that you and I are eventually, shortly in a few months, uh, going to do another round of our Star Trek season survivor. And the third season of TOS is going to be in that bracket. And so uh, these are all things that we'll be talking about at length when we do that as well. Yeah, I I knew when I was watching this, I was like, oh, this has third season written all over it. And we're going to have to talk about that. And I think I knew when the the picks for our next round of Survivor came out that TOS season three is not it's certainly not going to beat out TOS season one or two. So like, why are we bothering? (laughs) Um, But it, it will be fun to talk about exactly like what is going on with this season and get into some of the more details that that you listed there and then one other thing that I noticed that I I have a hunch about I haven't googled around to confirm whether or not it's true though I have like looked at the images side by side is that it appears that large portions of the M4 robot um, which is the name of the robot that is trying to kill them in this opening scene are uh, taken and identical from the changeling robot Um, right yes (laughs) like it's at first I was like oh my god is it the exact same robot like I actually thought maybe they just reused the whole thing but they seem to have reused several several parts of it and later we're going to get to see the model of the Enterprise right that is used for uh for space scenes as well (laughs) yeah that was really fun actually I enjoyed that um and it gave me you know a design sense for how I could fit such a model into you know the interior design of my own home Oh, yeah. I absolutely want one. I was filled with envy when that showed up. I was like, how do I get that? Where do, where do I get a button that makes that for me? You know, it's also worth mentioning in this opening scene here that Flint is, uh, and we'll get into this more in a little bit, very adamant that they that Kirk's Bach and Bones need to leave and they cannot have um, what it is that they're there to collect. And then they're allowed to have it. And I really feel that that is never explained, like the harshness with which he first approaches them and the change to being more open about having them, you know, mine for this on the planet. uh, I never gets explained in a way that makes any sense to me. Right. So I think that there's an implicit explanation, though I'm not sure it makes sense. And, and it's in the next scene. So let's let's do that. So we come back from the, the credits. We're still in this standoff. Kirk explains that Flint can certainly 
kill them if he wants, but then the Enterprise is going to kill him from orbit and still end up taking the right talent. So there's really just no need for this posturing. It's not going to affect the outcome in any way. And Bones makes a different appeal here. Bones makes an emotional appeal. He describes the, the Rigelian fever. He says it's like the bubonic plague. It's awful. And when he says this, when Bones says this, Flint intones Constantinople. 1334. And then he describes people dying in the street. He talks about the rats for a while. And that that works, right? This emotional appeal is what works. This is when Flint invites them to his house while the, the, the robot gets the right talent for them. And so I think that we're meant to understand, right, that we're going to come to understand later, of course, for sure, that Flint is describing a memory, right? He's remembering the Black Death in Constantinople and that this tugs on his heartstrings, right? That he says, I, I, I'm not going to be responsible for doing that to people. But that never gets totally explained. Uh, we don't see him, I don't think, act out of that impulse uh, at really at any other moment. His motivations change pretty quickly once the whole plot of this episode changes, in, like literally <laughs> the next the next scene. Uh, one thing I do want to say too, before we, uh, before we pause here, uh, is just to say that I think you and I certainly are ethically obligated to uh, to stop here and correct the date. He says Constantinople 1334, but the Black Death was not in Constantinople in 1334. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting choice of place as well. Like if I were going to deliver a passionate speech about the effects of the of the Black Death, I that's not the place I would pick. <laughs> Right. And it has to line up with the fact that he is, I wasn't making a joke earlier. I mean, I was, but he is also literally wearing a Byzantine emperor costume. And the the art, both in the, the, the redone uh, effects and then in the original matte painting, his house, his mansion looks like it's a building in Constantinople. So at some point in the writing of this episode, he was supposed to have been a Byzantine emperor or something. And then... That just never got resolved. <laughs> right, exactly. That just never that just never comes back. And I, I will say, in fairness to the the script writers, the team of, of writers, the Black Death started in 1334, but it started in China. It didn't get to Constantinople until 1347. And and then what we really think of as the the Black Death, which is to say this this disease in Western Europe, was 1348 to, to 1351. Though of course, then you know there were local breakouts occurring every generation for another 400 years, which it seems might be the world we're getting ready to live in ourselves. But, you know, I can imagine someone just looked this up in uh, Encyclopedia Britannica or something and saw 1334 as the date and threw it in the, the script. But, you know, we're educators or have been educators anyway. And uh, I felt like we needed to we needed to use our uh, platform for that. I appreciate uh, the 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 precision that you brought to even that <laughs> retelling by mentioning that they would have looked like looked... By mentioning that they would have looked it up in an Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, you could have really easily said, like, Googled it, <laughs> which clearly they <laughs> wouldn't have done in 1968 or 69. Uh, um, so you you really brought your, like, historical educator lens even to your explanation of this. <laughs> While uh, I can't say that I enjoyed this episode or I thought it made any sense uh, or was edited or directed well or any of those things, um, even though there's some enjoyment that comes from those flaws, uh, I will highlight this one moment, historically inaccurate as it is, in James Daly's performance here as Flint when he's talking about the rats, where I actually was emotionally compelled by that. I could really feel like it was my first clue of, oh, this person lived through that thing and they saw it and they are still affected by the 
the death and the disease and the horror of that moment in a way that they carry with them today that seems to be meaningful. And I really did get that just from these few lines um, from the character. It does not follow through to the rest of the episode at all. However, I enjoyed it. I did too. James Daly's performance is impeccable. I mean, it's it's flawless. It's really, really awesome. I, I don't know what his career was. I don't know what else he's been in. Clearly has some stage chops, though. There's definitely something of the, the Shakespearean actor about him. Uh, and just watching this performance, I mean, I think he could have played all of the, you know, the, the leading roles. He could have been Hamlet. He could have been Macbeth. He could have been Lear. Probably did do all of them, in fact. So, yeah, they, they really did a great job of, of casting him. And, you know, if having to pay him a really good salary is the reason we didn't get his styrofoam boulder, I'll take it because it's a it's an awesome performance. Yeah, from what I've read about the actor, he has a, a strong theater history, as as you correctly surmised. He was also um, 10 years prior to this in 1959 in a Twilight Zone episode, um, A Stop at Willoughby. Uh, so, you know, he's also got some sci-fi cred, which is super fun, especially in the older Trek. All right. Well, we're going to put that episode on a ballot then at some point, because I, I do want to see more. I do want to see more of this guy for sure. Something else I wanted to say about his performance, but maybe not so much about his performance as about, I don't know what his face looks like, but also the haircut and the costume is that, well, for one thing, this looks kind of like a Romulan costume because the Romulan costumes are Roman costumes, right? In fact, actually, I wish these were the Romulan costumes from <laughs> yeah, the original series, good. but he's also got the haircut, which of course, again, is because the Romulan haircut is kind of based on a classical Roman haircut but he also looks a little and sounds a little like mark leonard as well so uh there was it was working on me for sure so that's what, what i'm trying to say here it looked good it was a great performance yeah this is gonna be i don't i have absolutely no idea how many times i've mentioned i might cosplay an outfit from an episode we've covered but i'll actually i'm gonna give this one to you glenn i'm not gonna do it i think you should you should cosplay <laughs> I think, in this I, outfit i think we should both wear this and go to a con together and just be on a panel just wearing this and never never explain it to anybody I think it'll be great. Well, next scene, we're at Flint's house. We're in a kind of a sitting room, which is where most of our drama or about half of our drama is going to happen from here on out. Uh, Flint lives in this massive house all alone, except for the robot. He's got a great collection of art and antiques. This includes a Shakespeare first folio, a Gutenberg Bible. He's got a whole bunch of Da Vinci paintings. The, the scene shifts at this point to another room, and we see a young woman who is watching our protagonist our main characters uh, talk to each other on TV from another room in the house. So Flint is clearly lying about living alone. Uh, Flint leaves the trio alone with some brandy. Uh, we're going to get back to that in a minute and then spend an hour on it, I'm sure, uh, and goes and speaks with this mysterious woman. Uh, we learn that her name is Raina, and she says that she wants to meet their guests, and she especially wants to talk subdimensional physics with Spock, which... You know, I mean, a lot of people feel that way, right? Oh, but yeah. uh, Flint's oh, yeah. not going to let her uh, because humans are selfish and brutal and he wants to protect her from that. Uh, but then he recognizes that she's lonely, although strangely, she doesn't know what that word means. You know, that's curious. Uh, so this is going to be the mystery that our crew ends up investigating, right? So at this point, Valerie, what was your guess about what's up with this character? What's up with her uh, when, when you first watched this? Honestly, I had absolutely no idea. And that almost remains true <laughs> through the end of the episode. <laughs> I find the plot of this episode or the plots of this episode extremely confusing. But I do think I picked up on something here uh, that is very Valerie to pick up on and that I think carries through the rest of the episode is that she she struck me as somebody who 
a young woman who was being held captive by a creepy older man uh, and was in some sort of toxic and abusive situation um, that had like warped her social development. That was like, my first thing was like trauma (laughs) Um, (laughs) because just she has no affect like ever, (laughs) which is we'll find out part of the point. And and that was the most perplexing thing to me, which is like this complete lack of affect, yet with like intellectual curiosity. And now that I know what happens at the end, it seems like obvious that I should have guessed this. But at this point, I really didn't. It seemed like, oh, someone who's never met another human and has not been socialized appropriately could totally uh, present with no affect um, or understanding of like, uh, you know, a wide array of, of human emotion. I also noticed that the definition of loneliness was terrible. Um, right. Is... <laughs> You're not going to do well on the SATs with that answer. <laughs> yeah. It was defined as a thirst and a flower dying in the desert. And I feel like the thirst thing, I, this is, I think, a very contemporary reading because now, right, there are thirst traps and you can thirst bait people, um, meaning like that you're putting out a, a sexy photo. You look sexy. People are thirsty for you. But given where this episode goes with love and her relationship with Kirk, um, I, I wonder if this like thirst metaphor had something sexual or romantic in it as well, um, that they weren't just talking about a pure act of being lonely, but being lonely in, in a sexual romantic sense. Also, this is the scene where he tries to kiss her, and I'm extremely confused. I mean, these are all the same feelings I had about this, too. I, I will say I do suspect that this line about loneliness being a desert, uh, being a flower dying in the desert, uh, is from some 19th century poem that I just didn't recognize. I'd be happy. I would be delighted, in fact, to learn from a, a listener uh, if that is true and where it comes from and go check that out. But I had the same readings here, right? I assumed that this was going to be, uh, uh, you know, this young woman was going to turn out to be someone who was stranded on this planet uh, in some kind of accident. Uh, you know, this is going all the way back to the original Star Trek pilot, this idea that uh, a young woman is the only survivor in some kind of space crash, you know, crashing down on a planet and that he has raised her as a daughter, but then also now wants to be her lover and is trying to make this transition in a way that's really creepy. I mean, that's definitely what it felt like to me. And I think it's supposed to, right? I think we're meant to interpret it this way because this is certainly what's going to happen with Kirk later on. And this is setting all of us, Kirk and us, the audience, up for the dramatic revelation that that's not what's going on at all. Yeah. You know what I don't need more of? It's a father slash lover confusion, television, entertainment. (laughs) Like I don't, I'm fine. I've had enough incest from eight seasons of Game of Thrones really to last a lifetime. I don't need any more incest plots for the whole rest of my life. That was the quota. It's already filled. Also, just as a reminder, for all these things we just said, this is the Valentine's Day episode. So, like, I, you know, the 60s are showing. Well, meantime, uh, back in the antiques room, Bones is finally breaking out the 100-year-old sorry and brandy. And even Spock wants a brandy because he is close to experiencing an emotion. Envy. You see, none of the Da Vinci paintings in this room have ever been cataloged or reproduced, yet they are all totally authentic. But also, they've all been painted recently. So that is a mystery, too. Also, I'm not sure what Spock means by authentic in this case, but that's all right. Uh, And Kirk's response to this information is to suspect some kind of subterfuge, right? That, I don't know, this is an illusion of some sort meant to trap them. It's some kind of 
trick for them. Uh, so he gets the Enterprise uh, on the phone or on the communicator, and they're going to look into Flint and this planet. And then at the same time, now the, the robot comes back with purple crystals that are Rytalin, I guess. Uh, so it is time to go. Uh, but then Flint is there. And he wants them to stay for dinner. And when they protest because, you know, hey, there's this epidemic on their ship they need to go take care of. Uh, he says that the robot can turn the mineral into an actual inoculation way more quickly than they can. Uh, and besides, don't you all want to make out with Raina? <laughs> and, uh, as soon as Kirk sees Raina, the answer is definitely yes for Kirk. And and Raina is pretty awesome, right? She's smart and hot and stuff. Uh, the deal is, as he explains it here, though we come to know that this is a lie, but the deal is that she is the daughter of some people who used to work for Flint, but who died. So he's been her legal guardian. But when Flint introduces her, though, he gives us all a little clue as to what is going on, though I did not pick this up until I watched it with the subtitles, I will say. But her last name is Kopek. And uh, and this is a, a mispronunciation of the Czech name Chopek, as in Karl Chopek, the Czech playwright who coined the term robot. Oh, I didn't know that. Good catch, Glenn. Yeah, I never heard it that way. But when I saw it in the, the subtitles, I, of course, my immediate thing was to go check and make sure that was really, I was reading it right, that that's really what it was supposed to be. And it is. So there was a little a little clue there. Yeah, I call this scene and then the entire rest of the episode uh four men one woman creepy town um (laughs) it's really difficult to watch the scene where rena is introduced to kirk spock and bones because it's it's just by contemporary standards incredibly creepy all they're all doing is hitting on her and every single time she says i'm really smart and i would like to talk about the things like a real human please uh every single one of them is like well wouldn't that be nice because you're hot oh that's really great because you're hot oh our pleasure because you're hot like it's just like gets completely ignored um and it's it's pretty upsetting i think to watch the way that she is treated in this episode and objectified and commodified um uh which again we can get into more when we learn about the end but you know one thing that we haven't there was those two things we haven't said yet one is we've already you and i lost track of the fact that Everyone on the Enterprise is going to die within the next, like, three and a half hours. Right. Um, And I don't even know if we mentioned that explicitly. We keep saying there's an epidemic, but, like, they have four hours or everyone on the Enterprise is going to die, Um, which, again, the whole episode feels like it should just be a bigger deal than it really is. And also this idea of Spock saying, oh, these are authentic, like, and Kirk thinking maybe it's an illusion – Makes me think about the season one episode, The Squire of Gothos, where that kind of is what's happening. And a lot of this house uh, and and the character of Flint are really reminiscent of that episode, or at least they were for me. They were for me as well, right? And I wish there had been a few more things going on in this scene. One, in that case, I I wish there had been a little more of a wink and a nod to the audience. Uh, Not that the thing needed to be played for laughs, but it would have been nice to hear Kirk, in some sense, just just, just in some way refer to the fact that they've been in exactly that situation before to to clue us into why he has this intense reaction and, and why he's issuing these orders. That's one thing I would have liked here. But then, of course, yeah, the other thing that I would have liked, not just in this scene, but in, I'd say, at least two more scenes would have been a little more of our trio 
talking about what's at stake for them because it is just totally lost sight of in the episode. And that just seems like a, a kind of basic writing flaw, right? That uh, the thing that is motivating our characters is just forgotten about and it really needs to be here in the story. And I think it just suggests that this episode, the the, the shooting script, right? The episode, as it turns out, is not the episode as the original writer had conceived of it. That it went through a number of different hands, uh, was given this subplot that became the real plot, but then the premise wasn't changed. Uh, and again, you know, we just have to, I think, point to the budget restraints of the third season here for these problems. It was definitely disappointing, especially coming at it from the contemporary context of COVID-19 and being in quarantine. You know, the, the, the hook in the beginning of the episode about what is happening on the Enterprise and Rigelian fever, I really wanted to see how Trek was going to handle that, right? I, w- I was pretty excited for it. And so that just amplified my disappointment that that part of the plot is lost. I will also say that this scene is the beginning of um, something we see a lot with the dynamic between Spock and Kirk and Bones and and, and other characters, but is really heavy handed and clear in this episode, which is that um, Spock will get made fun of the entire time. And in fact, even the moral of the story, as we'll talk about at the end, seems to be that like, again, Spock is emotionless. He doesn't understand love. But he's the only one the entire time that is acting in a not creepy and like appropriate to the situation in terms of what is the mystery here and appropriate to the situation in terms of what's happening on the Enterprise kind of way. Every single step of the way, he's like, sure, I, I, I'd love to talk to you about science. I like science, right? No mention of objectifying Reina at all. But then he keeps going, but actually we need to solve this Regulian fever problem and this is not nobody cares about this mystery please stop and he has to do that multiple times and still no one listens to him and it's not just kirk and bones who've lost sight of this the thing that really struck me about the responses to the Rigelian fever, to the epidemic on the Enterprise, in light of what we ourselves are living through right now is that flint is not concerned about this at no point is flint like whoa 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 i'm sorry what there's Rigelian fever you might have Rigelian fever right now get six feet away from me and where's your mask, right? That never, he never says anything. He's like, actually, why don't you come over for dinner? We'll share a lot of food. You can make out with my daughter. That'll be great. Totally fine. We, you know, this, how, how contagious can this sickness be? Really? Like, I'm not worried about that. You're, you're right. That is in direct contradiction to the emotionally moving speech he gives about Constantinople and the rats in the beginning of the episode. And it also, oh, there are just so many ways that this plot is really inconsistent. You know, it doesn't make sense with the fact that we find out at the end of the episode that he is dying. So he should actually be incredibly concerned about this. And then there's this weird tension between the way that Flint has uh, a lot of empathy for how difficult it might be to live through a plague and at the same time really, really hates humans. So doesn't care if 400 of them die. Yeah, totally inconsistent, right? And this is this is where we had this confusion about the, the motivation, even just at the, the beginning, where it does not seem like uh, one hand knows what the other hand is doing in the, the writing of this. Well, uh, let's move on to the next scene before we uh, just you know, start going around in circles here. We actually get two intercut scenes after this, so we'll just take them together. And the, the first one is Bones supervising the robot in the lab. Uh, there's not much to this other than that the, the robot goes into another room and, and locks the door on Bones, leaving 
leaving him left alone with a a collection of uh, what I took to be Skittles-infused vodka (laughs) sitting on the table. Uh, And then later, the robot has the Rytalin, but the Rytalin wasn't pure enough, so they're going to have to start over, even though the clock is is ticking down. Uh, The bigger scene, the A scene here, is about pool. Uh, about billiards, I guess, and and dancing, waltzing. Uh, Flint monologues a bit about how savage humans are, even now. The Enterprise has weapons, after all, and it's on a, a mission to advance Federation causes. But Kirk says that their weapons are defensive. And anyway, Flint's the one who shot first during their encounter, right? But uh, Flint deflects this by suggesting that Kirk and Reyna should dance to the waltz that Spock is playing on the piano right now. Uh, they almost make out here, but then the party is over. And when Kirk and Spock are left to their own devices, Spock reports that the waltz he's just played is an entirely unknown but totally authentic piece by Brahms. So the mystery thickens. Uh, but the thing here really is the budding romance between Kirk and Reyna, uh, though I don't think we can predict a happy future for them, right? I mean, I know Kirk falls in love with lots of people, but it just... It even feels out of character for Kirk to be so distracted from what's happening to his ship and crew as to completely ignore it for the sake of this woman. Like, usually Kirk, his number one priority is always the ship, right? This just doesn't really make sense as, as a character for him. And this is the first scene also where they're playing billiards that we get the incredibly strange and shaky camera angles. Um it was actually really upsetting the way the camera shakes in several scenes in this episode. Um, I found it kind of uh, unsettling, but to start with the lab scene, I, there needs to be some sort of like behind the scenes documentary called like Star Trek, the original series fun with food coloring or something (laughs) because uh, they really, really do go for their brightly colored liquids. And also this scene doesn't make any sense because the entire point of Bones going to the lab with the robot is so that he can supervise everything the robot does. And then the robot goes behind this door and Bones doesn't seem very bothered about it. So even that didn't make any sense. No, there was there, there didn't seem to be any tension in that scene or anything at stake. And that's just, a, an, again, that's just kind of a writing 101 flaw, right? Every scene has to have something at stake. Uh, and, and there just was nothing at stake in that scene. So it was hard to be invested in it. And then I, you know, I think they missed an opportunity to to have a, a richer discussion um, about you know, the Federation and its mission and its values, even though we have seen this particular tension of, right, like, what is the Federation? What is Star Trek? Uh, what is Starfleet? Is it a military? Is it not? Um, but I I thought the line that Flynn delivers of the mission of of your ship is to colonize, to exploit, to destroy, if necessary, to advance Federation causes. And Quite honestly, he's not wrong. Like, we do see this in in TOS and in a a lot of Trek. Um, And we get this very Shatner response that's like, our mission, peaceful. Our weapons, defensive. We're like, there's like verbs missing, which is a very Shatner (laughs) way of talking. Um, But I would have loved to hear more about that um, and to have that be the argument that's extended instead of an incredibly long waltz scene. 
Right. So I'm going to jump as ahead a little bit and just you know reveal. You know, I don't think there are any real spoilers here on this show. Right. That we're going to learn eventually that Flint uh, is six thousand years old. Right. That he's he was born on Earth in Mesopotamia around the year four thousand BC. He's six thousand years old. And my memory of this episode before watching it for you and I to have this conversation today was that his whole deal was that his origin story as this kind of, you know, superhero of sorts, at least somebody with immortality, that his whole origin story was wrapped up in some episode of violence that left him emotionally traumatized. And he wandered the earth, essentially, looking for some way to escape from human violence. And that that's uh, where he kind of has this visceral emotional response to thinking about the plague as well. And once space travel's available, he goes off on his own to this planet because he just can't bear to deal with the violence of human beings. And... And now they've they've found him. It's 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 gotten it's caught up with him again, but that's not actually his backstory at all. But that was how I remembered this episode. And there is some implication of this in uh, in some places, and this is one of them, right? Where he seems like someone who is promoting this intense and, and potentially even extreme pacifist ideology, this pacifist viewpoint that is at odds with the people we regard as being our heroes of this show, people who we would actually think of as being more pacifist than the average person in the 20th century, for example. But the whole story taken as a whole doesn't read that way, right? But it does read to me, thinking of this in terms of a writer, putting my writer hat on, it does seem to me like that's the story someone wanted to tell. And maybe it's the first story someone did tell, but then the revisions got rid of a lot of that. I like the lesson that you took from it um, years ago. Uh, maybe <laughs> maybe that is part of the lesson that was intended. And what's happening is that um, as, you know, we have continued to become more and more uh, socially aware of problematic dynamics that we now can't see past all of the all of the trappings that encourage us to stop and reflect and be like, wait, this doesn't seem cool. But I guess if you weren't distracted by how problematic all the trappings of this episode are, you you might take something like that as a moral. And, and that seems, you know, nice, I, I guess. You've opened the door to the fact that maybe they were trying something good here, <laughs> uh, which is which is not my original reading of of the episode to be to be quite honest. And you know, I would direct Mr. Flint to uh, the first season of Enterprise if he would like to learn about you know the Federation's interest in in going out to space without weapons and seeing what happens. <laughs> well, we can still get that episode, right? I think we could launch a fan campaign to get Enterprise back on the air. I mean, you know, it's been 15 years, but I think we could still I think we could still do it. And then we could have an episode where Flint, uh, Flint actually shows up somehow. I don't know. That's probably a terrible idea. Well, let's get to the next scene before I start writing even worse fan fiction than that. So uh, Kirk goes down to the lab to, to help with the science while Bones is out with Flint and the robot getting more of this right talent. But when Kirk gets there, he just kind of wanders around the lab, not knowing what to do. It's as if he's suddenly remembered that he's not actually Janeway. Uh, it's a very strange scene again. <laughs> and uh, and Raina shows up and she stares at a closed door for a little while and then tells us that it's the only room in the whole palace that she's forbidden from entering. But there's no time for any of that business because uh, they make out. Uh, and then the robot shows up. It's going to kill Kirk, but Spock is there just in time to save the day. So we've got a killer robot, a forbidden room, a plague, and Kirk is totally preoccupied with romance. And you said earlier, Valerie, that this is kind of the 
iconic notion of Kirk. But I think this is one of these things that has become the pop culture idea of Kirk that is not generally borne out in seasons one and two. And that, you know, the pop culture idea of Kirk is really season three Kirk. And that this is one of the episodes that I think principally contributes to this idea of Kirk as uh, a sort of unbridled, unrestrained womanizer. That's that's fair. I mean, he is you know, a, a handsome man who falls in love easily, very easily in this episode. <laughs> I am always struck by watching uh, TOS that like, man, you have a crush on someone for like one hour and that is apparently love, uh, which is very different from how things operate today. Um, but uh, you know, there were a couple interesting things in this scene. It's hilarious when you recap it for what it is, which is he wanders around, she stands in front of a door. Like, there's a lot of silence. Even for an episode of TOS, this dragged, um, you know, and scenes were incredibly, it was like a neorealist episode of TOS or something. Um, but I thought the detail that uh, the robot doesn't disable weapons like entirely like not it's not that all weapons are disabled within flint's palace by virtue of the robot and its technology it's that the robot can only disable your weapon if it notices you're there i thought that was like an interesting detail that they could have told me more about um i think another episode of trek might have explored that a little bit further but i've been waiting this entire time to point something out uh that i think now needs to be said given that spock saves kirk's life in this scene which is that this episode is almost impossible to watch without the lens of Kirk Spock slash fiction. Yes, for sure. I hadn't thought about that, but now that you pointed out, yeah, it's absolutely obvious, right? It's all I was thinking about. So for viewers who might not know, you know, slash fiction is this genre of fan fiction where, um, Two characters from a show who aren't necessarily a couple or romantically or sexually involved um, are paired. So, you know, like that's the slash this person slash that one. And that's indicative of them being a couple. And it's, you know, pretty, pretty commonly believed. Um, I I don't know enough to know if it's like actually true, but um, it's always the narrative that I've heard that it was fan fiction in the 70s that paired Kirk and Spock as a romantic and sexual couple that really started the entire genre of slash fiction. Um, and once you kind of know that fact and you go back and you watch TOS, at least for me, it's it's really hard not to see it kind of everywhere. And there are so many moments in this episode where, you know, you can call it also platonic and, and a deep friendship love, which is how traditionally their relationship is framed. But there are so many moments where Spock is just like staring for a little bit too long at how long Kirk and Reyna are dancing or like saving Kirk's life or being like, hey, Kirk, maybe stop thinking about that woman so much. We have stuff to do. Um, and and especially the final scene in this episode. And I'll talk about that more when we get there. But I just had to bring it to the table that this is the lens with which I was watching the entire episode. <laughs> um, and I think it makes it better. Well, I really do wish that we'd had Spock's personal log for this episode, right? Where he's just complaining, just ranting into his uh, his microphone uh, about how he's the only person who remembered that there was an epidemic on the ship and uh, what a hassle it was to to keep Kirk in check this whole episode. I would love to, I don't know, someone has probably done this actually on the internet, right? But written uh, logs of this sort, sort of rewriting these episodes from the perspective of some other character that we're not really focused on and getting the story from that person's perspective. If no one has done that, it needs to be done for this episode from Spock's perspective, for sure. 
I'd watch that show. Um, <laughs> definitely. Um, but, but yeah. And I also think, you know, it, in, in the world that I've created in my mind for Kirk and Spock's um, romantic relationship, Spock is not a jealous man. Um, he can tolerate Kirk's uh, philandering. Um, but, uh, you know, he's trying to keep Kirk on task and like keep him alive. And it's very difficult to do in this episode. It's also <laughs> worth mentioning that uh, I am really, really not okay with the frequency with which uh Kirk touches Reyna in a very sexual way without her consent while she has a look of horror and fear on her face. Uh, those those aspects of this episode were really difficult for me to watch. And this moment where he goes to kiss her uh, was was upsetting again in that way where he just like very creepily is like touching her shoulders and her neck in a way like she is giving no signs that she is into this. Um, including that she never kisses him back and her eyes are open the entire time. She just she seems really traumatized and it, it reads uh, it, it does not read well for me. Right. And of course, that's not the intention, right? The intention is that this is supposed to seem comforting. Kirk's trying to comfort her. We're supposed to read it that way. And her behavior is supposed to be because, well, she's never been kissed before and doesn't really know what it is because, hey, she's a robot, right? But yeah, it, it's hard to watch it that way. I, I don't see it that way when I watch this now. It's just, uh, there's just a real creep factor to it that, that that undermines this episode, but in a way that the creators, I don't think, could have anticipated, right? This is telling us more about the cultural norms of 1969 than anything else. Well, all right, so Flint and Bones are back, and Flint explains that the robot was just literally interpreting his standing orders and was protecting Reyna from Kirk. But there is definitely now some very clear competition going on between Flint and Kirk, some competition for Reyna's affection. Uh, when Flint leaves, Spock lectures Kirk about his priorities. Finally, right? I say good for you, Spock, at this point. Uh, it should have happened, I don't know, five scenes ago. Uh, but we do also get the report from the Enterprise. Uh, there are no records for Flint or Reyna. Also, Spock did get some tricorder readings from Flint, and these confirm that Flint is human and that everything around them is real, I guess. But the catch is that Flint is 6,000 years old. But Kirk is really just concerned with Reyna, all right? He wants to know what power does Flint have over her? And then we also see Flint and Reyna watching this scene as well on their own TV. And uh, Flint assures her that he doesn't mean any harm to Kirk. And then he tells her to go say goodbye to him. Yeah, I still, it took me till the reveal at the end of the episode to figure out why it was that Flint was both being so jealous and possessive and also driving Kirk into her her arms. I found it extremely confusing. But again, Spock wins the day. He's like, hey, maybe we should be paying attention to the epidemic and not this one random woman that we literally just met in this incredibly suspicious scenario. Also, we're probably being monitored. So chill out. And even after Spock says that, Kirk is like checking in with the Enterprise and like revealing, right, everything that they know. <laughs> and it's just... it's hard to watch yeah i mean one wonders how does kirk ever how did he make it to captain how did he make it to lieutenant from ensign if he's going to operate this way Uh, i think we've been a little grumpy maybe about this episode and we didn't really kind of preface that we didn't warn people we were going to do that maybe we didn't know we were going to do it so we got into it but i will say one of the things that does make me a little grumpy about this episode is simply the way that it undermines kirk's character Uh, you and i are yet to rank the captains but i don't think i will be surprising anyone or spoiling anything for the for some future episode that we do to say that, you know, Kirk's going to be higher on my list than lower, but this episode is not serving him well. We are not getting the good Captain Kirk here. Yeah. And we are grumpy and, you know, we are taking our our critical eye to it. And I think there's a lot of um, 
a lot of threads that we're pointing out here that we often talk about when we talk about TOS, just because it's incredibly difficult to to watch it from our current standpoint and not see the misogyny and not see how women are treated and and not see some of you know the pacing of the show as different from from how we experience television now or even when we grew up. Um, that being said, while I think this episode is extremely flawed. I'm having a great time talking about it and thinking about it. And I mostly think it's hilarious um, rather than, you know, I'm not irate or anything about it. No, no, and I'm not either. And I think that's one of the joys of doing the show this way. And also, I'm super looking forward to uh, talking about cocktails on this episode when we get to the end. So uh, let's get another scene in so we can get closer to that moment. Uh, Next up is the goodbye scene that we've just been told is about to happen. Uh, But goodbye is not what Kirk wants. He loves Raina. She loves him. He knows it. He knows that she doesn't love Flint. They make out. And again, Flint is watching this on TV. And now he mutters, a last tender encounter, Kirk to end your usefulness. Uh, he did that way better than I did. I actually just was really filled with uh, huge feelings of, uh, I don't know, poor self-esteem there, uh, trying to trying to do uh, trying to do James Daly there. Uh, but yeah, so this point here, we get this sense, right, that there is something nefarious, that he is up to something, even though he has promised Raina that he is not. For all of my hate on, uh, on you know, Raina's disinterest in this relationship and the creepiness. I actually thought that this was a a really great on-screen kiss. Uh, I actually thought it was moving, and and for the '60s, there there was quite a lot of passion in it. Even though everyone always keeps their lips closed and just smushes their face together, um, I, I I thought it was well done as an on-screen kiss. If you take all of the context away. Yeah, I couldn't look past the notion of of what love is for Kirk because, right, we know it's been less than four hours. It's been two hours, maybe, that they've known each other, and yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't get past that. I'm not even sure I could could tell you anything about the actual on screen kiss moment. Well, the, the the next scene, we're back in the lab. The Rytalin still isn't ready, but they can tell that it's behind this forbidden door. And just as Kirk is about to use his phaser to shoot it open, uh, the door opens up on its own, and the Rytalin is there. It's all ready to go. But then they see a body on a slab with a sheet over it, uh, just like in a morgue, and it's labeled Reina 16, and there's a 15, and a 14, and so on. Reina's a robot, right? That's what we learn here. And just in time, Flint is here to explain the whole thing. The current version of Reina is nearly perfect, and his centuries of loneliness are about to be over. You see, he was born in Mesopotamia in 3834 BC. A lot of precision there somehow. Uh, He was killed in battle once, but it didn't stick. He has perfect tissue regeneration, and so he doesn't age and doesn't die. For 6,000 years, he's lived someplace, then pretended to die, and then moved on. He was Da Vinci. He was Brahms. He was also Alexander and Solomon and Merlin. Uh, It's a super long list. Uh, Along the way, he's married a hundred times, only to watch his wife die. And so he's been trying to make an android woman to be his immortal companion. And that's Reina. But Reina doesn't know that she's an android. Uh, this is not actually the end of this scene, but I think we need to pause and talk about this backstory before we before we get to part two of this scene. Because there is a lot going on here. The list of names of, of, of people that he has posed as, or I guess not posed as, but but has been as part of his, uh, his long life, uh, to me is really strange. I mean, I don't know enough about maybe Da Vinci and, and Brahms to... Uh, know if this could have been possible, but Alexander, there's no way this dude was Alexander, right? If this guy is not aging, 
well, he's pretty old, right? I mean, he's clearly at least in his 50s. And Alexander did most of his conquering when he was like 19 years old. Uh, Alexander very definitely inherited his kingdom from a dad, right? Who knew him, who raised him as a baby. So some of these things don't line up. Some of the names here also like Merlin, not a real person. Yeah. Right? Like that's a character from a novel, you know? <laughs> it's, it, it is extremely, it is an extremely confusing list of names. You know, when, when this scene was presented, I was like, oh, great, a list of historical names. Glenn and I are really going to get into this. This is going to be so fun. We'll find all the themes. And then I kind of sat with it for a little bit. And I was like, this makes absolutely no sense. I think the first thing I want to point out is that the the biggest inconsistency here is that we see Da Vinci in Voyager on the holodeck, and he does not look like this guy. No, right? They needed John Rhys-Davies to play, to play all of this. Um, but yeah, some fictional characters, biblical characters, like it just... It doesn't make any sense. And what I really want to know is who came up with this list? Like what, somebody paired these things together for a reason. Why these people? Yeah. And I was surprised really that Brahms was the person who was picked. I guess Brahms did write a lot of waltzes, you know, as if we're working backwards from needing to have a dance scene and so on. But yeah, I mean, it's the same person who looked up when the Black Death was in the Encyclopedia Britannica, which just flipping through and looking for for the names of people to be, I guess. Uh, But it's, yeah, it's a pretty bad list. It's not the list that you and I would have picked for sure. Yeah. So Merlin, um, not a real person. Also, I couldn't figure out who Abramson was. Uh, There are a lot of people who've had that last name who've done things and been relatively famous, but there's not like a person that stands out to my knowledge if a listener has another idea. But but that one really threw me. Yeah, my sense of this was that this was the standard Star Trek thing where they give us a list of all sorts of names that we already recognize that are that are in our culture, that are in our history, and then give us one or two names that aren't to suggest that those are names that are happening between us watching this on the TV and the future where this story is taking place. We actually had another one of them in this episode. Uh, we at the, at the very beginning were told that there are also a lot of Reginald Pollock paintings. Reginald Pollock seems to be also someone. That they've made up. Though I did at first uh, think that maybe they meant Jackson Pollock, but just didn't want to get sued or something. But uh, it seems to be that it's the same sort of thing where they just make up a name to throw on the list. But uh, maybe maybe it is referring to someone super important that we're just, we're just missing. I would love to hear about that. I also noticed when Spock was listing, uh, you know, the collection of art that was there, there's one other that is like an artist from another planet or or something. And I didn't even notice that the first that it was Reginald Pollock. I just heard Pollock. I was like, oh, Pollock. And I didn't even right. think about it. But now it is absolutely hilarious uh, to give Pollock the first name Reginald. It's also confusing here because in a few lines, um, Flint talks about all of the great minds that that he has known, because Spock is like, oh, man, you must have really gotten to know and talk to some cool people. Um, and he lists Galileo. Uh, okay, that kind of meshes with some of the identities he's had. Moses, okay, fine, that kind of meshes with some of the identities he's had. But Socrates doesn't have, like, a pairing in, like, one of the people he's been, right? Um So even like this response list of famous people doesn't totally make a lot of sense. Um, And just the entire building, it it was almost as if like someone fed a computer like random bits (laughs) of Star Trek plot from other episodes and was like, here, here's the plot of this one, because this seems like the Squire of Gothos, but it's not an illusion. 
And then also it made me think of Who Mourns for Adonais, where we meet Apollo and we find out the entire Greco-Roman um, pantheon uh, were actually aliens, right? So I was like, okay, is Flint an alien? Uh, but no, he's just a human who discovered through some sort of weird genetic variance that he happens to be immortal, which also makes absolutely no sense. feels like there's a whole other episode that could happen about how Bones is intrigued by this fact like oh my god some humans are just immortal what a what a weird thing let's figure out how that worked um so it just feels really like uh you know cropped together like a a poorly done collage of other star trek plots and a poorly done collage of random names of people Right. Well, this idea of someone who lives forever, right, the immortal being and a human who ought to die but isn't dying is a pretty standard trope in literature. Uh, Brent and I actually just covered an issue of the the Sandman called Men of Good Fortune over on our Neil Gaiman podcast called Hanging Out with the Dream King. And in fact, that's one of my favorite issues of the Sandman, or certainly it's one of my favorite that we've covered so far over on that show. But this goes back all the way to the tradition of Cain, uh, as in Cain and Abel, right, that Cain is uh, that when Cain is cast out by God and he's given this mark that one of his curses is that he's going to live forever and have to wander the earth as a kind of punishment and always be on the outskirts of human community. Uh, there's also the medieval legend of the the wandering Jew, which is, is kind of an extrapolation of the Cain story as well. And all of that is going on here with Flint, right? And this, I think, is one of the things that led to my sort of poor memory of this episode from when I had watched it as a teenager, and actually even several times since then, that Flint was living a kind of cursed life, right? That this was wrapped up in an act of violence, like Kane's story is, and that the curse that he's living out is that he has to live forever, but is always going to be plagued by human savagery, human violence. And that part of his curse, too, is that he's going to outlive everyone that he ever cares about as well. And there is some real sadness in this story, but I'm at least if we think about it anyway, there's some real sadness in the story. And there's definitely sadness in the delivery, but I don't know how well it's really integrated into what else is going on in this episode because the episode has has made him out to be a real creepy villain uh, up until this point. And it doesn't do, I don't think, a good enough job of reversing that, of making him sympathetic to us now. And in fact, I mean, he's still not going to be sympathetic in just a moment. There's going to be some physical violence between him and Kirk. They also missed an opportunity here. If we're going to put whoever we want on this list and not all of the people have to necessarily be real, how did Pygmalion not get on the list? How was Flint not Pygmalion when he literally (laughs) designed, sculpted from his own hands, the perfect woman? And geez, isn't that problematic and creepy and maybe something went wrong? Like, you know, because when she comes to life, turns out she might have free will. Oh, no, that's really a problem considering Flint literally delivers the line. She is my handiwork and my property. She is what I desire. So there was like, uh, there's a whole Pygmalion subplot we can get into here, but they really missed the opportunity to put that on on the list. And there's, of course, no escaping the fact that, you know, uh, these two men are arguing over a woman. One of them is calling that woman, you know, his property. And there's this whole like, I choose, I choose, I choose scene that we get to in, in a little bit here. So um, this, yeah, this was just a really confusing reveal (laughs) in a lot of ways. 
Well, this is spot on, Valerie, that, yeah, they should have had Pygmalion on this list. And, uh, you know, we uh, we should say we're recording this, I think, just 48 hours after the announcement that uh, the Captain Pike show is happening, that CBS has picked up a show called Strange New Worlds that's going to be about Spock and Pike and number one. It's going to be about the Enterprise before Kirk gets there. There's time for us to be sending in our resumes to be classics consultants for that show, right? I mean, we need to get on that somehow. Yeah, I have a feeling uh, that Michael Chabon could be like, I got this handled, okay? Like, he's a pretty big, like, nerd in in that regard. But I think we could really help out. (laughs) Yeah, I think we could help out, too. I mean, look, I'll make coffee. If that lets me just be on this set, that's fine. I'll do that. pretty good at making coffee. Well, really, maybe we should try to be bartenders for the show. But uh, all right, we still got a few scenes here we need to do. So, yeah, we've got the backstory. So it's now time to, to resolve this episode. Flint can't let them go now that they know his secrets because they'll have to write a report and then people are going to come looking for him. Kirk does try to contact the Enterprise, but Flint Flint has a button that can freeze time, miniaturize something, and then transport that something. And so now the, the model of the Enterprise is here in the lab. Uh, it's the, you know, the real Enterprise. It's much smaller. It's got all the people inside, but they're paused. And uh, Flint is going to keep them this way for a thousand years and then let them out. And anyway, now that Kirk has awakened <laughs> Raina's emotions, <laughs> she'll come to feel genuine love for him once Kirk is gone. But the thing is, Raina's overheard some of this conversation, and she's going to hate Flint if he harms Kirk. So Flint restores the Enterprise, but Kirk is really, really upset that Flint used him, that he set him up to fall in love with Raina. And so Kirk attacks him. He starts this fist fight with Flint, and Raina hates this. She's not going to be the cause of this, and she says, Stop. I choose. I choose where I want to go, what I want to do. No one can order her around. And Kirk is really excited about this because it means she's fully human now, right? That she's a person. She's not property. And Raina says, I was not human. Now I love. And then she collapses to the floor inoperative. And, and, and Spock sums the whole episode up for us, or at least this scene for us, and says, the joys of love made her human. The agonies of love destroyed her. So, yeah, there's a lot going on here in the climax of the episode that I've tried to recap as succinctly as possible. Oh, there's so much going on. And I love how you literally could not deliver the line about uh, Flint having a button that does this without (laughs) without laughing. You could not do that with a straight face. Um, No. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing that's really not explained is like, okay, he's immortal, but he is human. How did he like this feels like an alien technology right? The ability to press a button and like make a ship disappear from space and then appear in this miniature version. Um, I also, though, really did enjoy it. I loved everybody on the on the bridge trying to stand still so it looked like they were frozen <laughs> in time. And I enjoyed Kirk peering in through the view screen um, in a way that kind of reminded me of like Alice in Wonderland, um, right? Like too big, too small, um, peering, peering through the window. So I actually really enjoyed that aspect of this scene, um, even though it's horrible and terrifying. But it's also strikes me as you were recapping it that given what we'll get in the little epilogue here it is very interesting that spock was the one that delivered the line about understanding love well right yeah should we just get to this this epilogue here definitely Right. So so back on the Enterprise, uh, with the Rigelian fever cured, Kirk is just sulking in his ready room. Uh, then he falls asleep in 
the most uncomfortable position I've ever seen anyone fall asleep in. Uh, Bones comes in and, and, and tells Spock, and we should say that Spock is in this scene, by the way. Uh, he tells Spock that Flint's immortality is broken. He's, he's actually dying now. Uh, Bones gave Flint the news himself before they left, and he reports that that Flint is now going to live out his life and, and spend you know, the remainder of his days improving the human condition. And Bones then also gives this huge monologue about love, which is that it's hard. Uh, and some of this monologue, though, is really chastising Spock for not being able or maybe not being willing to feel emotions, to not feel love. He's berating him for not ever having these experiences. And, and I think this is what you're pointing to when you say it doesn't make a lot of sense then that Spock is the person who gave us this little quip about love here, right? That should have been a Bones line. Yeah, this is a classic TOS ending where everybody just makes fun of Spock, uh, even though he was totally right the entire time and is the only reason any of them are alive. Um, (laughs) So it's always frustrating to watch scenes like this. So it's always frustrating to watch scenes like this. But again, what's about to happen is that Spock is going to, after Bones leaves, walk over to Kirk and help him try to forget this memory help relieve him of the pain right and it's this very private and intimate scene between the two of them again i invite you to read this through kirk's box slash fiction because the love it it just however you read it romantic sexual friendship platonic whatever bones delivers this really rude speech about how spock doesn't feel things and then we get this very slow and very intimate scene where what is being highlighted is the immense love that Spock feels for Kirk. Yeah, so you have read this scene the the way that we're supposed to. And in this this is prompted by Bones saying that he wishes that Kirk could just forget Reyna. But while I did not see this scene as anything other than a, a, a type of mind rape, right? That uh, this whole wiping Kirk's memory, using his mind melt to wipe Kirk's memory without his consent struck me as profoundly not cool. Uh, and this was on my mind very much because Elizabeth and I recently did a, a very uh, bingy rewatch of the entirety of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where exactly this sort of thing is a, a huge uh, plot element in the, the sixth season. And this just struck me as being a, an awful, horrible thing that Spock does that goes totally uncommented on. I was wondering if we were going to get through the entire episode, uh, any episode that we ever record without mentioning (laughs) Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, And I was trying to help us make it through without doing it because I really wanted to mention that like something TOS lacks is vampire plots and like Flint (laughs) being a vampire could have been a really cool um, reveal, right? Uh, That that would have made a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it could have been Dracula as much as Merlin, right? Right. Yeah. They really, they really, really, really could have made uh, (laughs) better choices for for who Flint was in his past. But it seems to me that what is trying to be said, and maybe this is a really generous reading, is here we have Bones saying, Spock, you just do not understand that people behave badly when they're in love. And then Bones leaves and Spock behaves badly because of his love for Kirk. So he does understand. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to read this scene. And I but I do also think that your original reading of it is is also correct, right? That that there is a sense that um, that 
the medical doctor who has just told Spock that he doesn't understand the human condition has just wished that he had a cure for what is ailing Kirk. And Spock is like, well, I've got that cure. I can do that. So I will follow the advice of this doctor and uh, administer this cure to, to Kirk. Certainly the, the writers did not intend for it to seem like a, a mind rape the, the way that I saw it. So both of your readings, I think, are, are much more in line with what the, the writers intended, that this is meant to speak to Spock's love for for Kirk, right, to show us that Spock does know what love is, that he does feel love. Right, and that he experiences love outside of the bounds of of like the traditional ways of seeing love that he experiences emotions outside of like the human and traditional way of experiencing emotions um and he's always getting this flack for for not but actually he just really experiences these these things differently and um you know here he either you know you can read this like um you know, erotic subtext to it of that's that's a different way that Spock has experienced his love than than they could really put on screen in the in the 60s, or just that he experiences it in his friendships, um, and that that isn't as valued uh, as the the romantic love that is often portrayed uh, on the screen and and in Star Trek. Definitely, I also feel like it's worth mentioning that I was really taken aback by how much of a mess Kirk was this is not something we see a lot that he's like falling apart and a complete lovesick mess in his uh quarters no and so we're definitely meant to believe that he really fell for Raina that he really was feeling love for her as incredulous as as you and I are uh, having grown up in a a generation where uh, people date for 15 years before getting married or never get married after 15 years and uh, uh, you know very different world than I guess the the dating world of the 1960s I suppose but yeah I mean we've never seen him be quite this messed up before Uh, I mean maybe Edith Keeler uh, is one, and in fact, maybe just done a little more subtly there, actually, maybe a little more realistically because it's being uh, used for a different purpose. But Edith Keeler is the only thing that I can think of that rivals this uh, uh, his, this response he has for Reina here. But I think that brings us to the end of our discussion of the episode. So what is up next is to talk cocktails. We are... As we've said before, we are recording this in the midst of quarantine. We are both in East Coast cities that are still locked down. So I'm not actually sure, Valerie, if you were able to make a cocktail for this episode. Were, were, did you have one? Oh, my bar is stocked. So uh, okay. <laughs> I'm happy to present uh, a cocktail for this episode. And I hope you made one, too, and we'll actually get two out of this. Yeah, our bar is not stocked, but I have some ideas. I came up with three ideas, which is actually probably going to be how I'm doing the cocktails for a while uh, anyway. It's just hypothetically try these at home at your own risk. Uh, but yeah, let's let's hear yours. Okay, well, I said my bar was stocked, but, you know, I lied a little bit. Um, I, I didn't have any brandy. <laughs> I had cognac, though. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, that's a type of brandy. Sure. <laughs> okay, great. Um so uh, I, I'm going to title this Requiem for a Cocktail. Um, there could be better <laughs> names out there, uh, but uh, and I invite listeners to share them with us. Uh, that, that was what I came up with at, at first. Maybe you can retitle it in real time. Glenn, do you have something better? Oh, I don't. You're the one always correcting my name. So <laughs> this, is, this is your game, not mine. Um, it's also born of some of the frustration I had as, you know, when I was researching this episode that Requiem for a Dream kept being suggested to me when it was not <laughs> what I wanted to look at. Um, Nobody wants to look at that. <laughs> my computer misread me. Um, but Requiem for a Cocktail has quite a few ingredients. I personally, when I encounter cognac or brandy, I always want some lemon and I want some sweetness to balance 
I want some sweetness to balance the sour of the lemon. That's that's how I approach most cocktails, but definitely a cognac or brandy cocktail. Um, so this cocktail is going to get uh, cognac as its main spirit, two ounces, and then a half ounce each of lemon juice and simple syrup, um, which is just equal parts water and sugar um, until heated until the sugar dissolves. I also wanted to make it fancier and more complicated and something you might drink out of the kind of glass that they had on screen when they were drinking their Saurian brandy. Um, so I added a quarter ounce of Contro. Uh, you could use any uh, orange um, liqueur here. So triple sec would, would work just as well. Um, and then I kind of wanted to get at uh, two elements of the plot. One was how antiquated and stuffy a lot of the the aspects of this show were. I was looking a lot at the rugs um, that were in this palace, and it just felt something like, it reminded me a little bit of like mom and dad's old fashioned liquor cabinet. So I decided to put a teaspoon of Chambord in it, um, ah. which which is a raspberry liqueur, and uh, and the bottle for Chambord, is, it just feels like it would, it feels like it would uh, be in the background of this set quite easily. Oh, that's brilliant. Yes, I love that you were thinking about the aesthetic of the the, the design here. And uh, yeah, it just felt like something you, like your parents would do or, you know, somebody who uh, used to be Merlin would do. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, and then you can finish it off. Uh, I think it really elevates the cocktail, but you can leave it out if you don't have it with a dash of Angostura bitters, which have this cinnamony spiciness to them that I, I suppose gets at the the spice of this Valentine's episode. Oh, this is brilliant. This this drink sounds delicious. And I, I wasn't sure if you were going to go the route. There are a couple different options here. The sort of low-hanging cocktail fruit of this episode, the presence of the Saurian brandy on screen is obviously just screaming for a drink, which is normally what I would do, uh, but is not what I thought of this time. I was really interested in some of the colors that were, were going on here. So I thought briefly about actually trying to do something with the uh, the, the bottles of Skittles-infused <laughs> vodka that we see in the... <laughs> the lab. Uh, but I was really struck by the Ritalin. So there are two things going on here. Uh, one, it's these purple crystals and then and then turns out to then be this kind of purple liquid. Uh, but then also because, uh, you know, I'm a dad now, everything is just puns for me. Like somehow oh, this is no. just a thing that's happened. And so I just couldn't stop hearing rye in Ritalin. Oh, and I was no. like, I had to make a purple rye drink. That's what I have to have to do. So the concept that I came up with that I did not try here at home and, and uh, would maybe suggest that listeners do uh, hesitantly uh, was actually to 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 do to really emphasize the purpleness. But that is hard to do with rye, which is a, a brown liquor. So uh, it's actually going to be a big mouthful of creme de violette. I was kind of envisioning just using three ounces of oh creme God. de violette, which is this really floral flavor. Uh, and then maybe about a half ounce of rye. But I would really recommend getting a rye that has a really spicy profile. Um, High West Double Rye is one that that might work there. Uh, and those are really the only two liquid ingredients that are going to go in this. But the other thing is going to be to, to muddle some fresh ginger in there and maybe even actually use a garnish of fresh ginger to add a, another type of spice to it to balance out the, the floral notes. Uh, I don't know that the odds are good that this will taste awesome. <laughs> it might need some tweaking, some actual experimenting. Uh, so just in the concept stage right now. But I was I was determined to make a purple drink. Well, now that we have proffered two cocktails for this uh, special occasion, only one of which should probably really be made at home, uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And as always, you can find us and all our other podcasts and creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. 
please come to our forum and our new subreddit called Clay Temple Media and talk with us about this episode. Uh, we were fairly critical of quite a bit of this, even while enjoying the episode in some way. I think it's certainly enjoying talking about it, but we'd love to hear what other people think. And in particular, we would love to know if you've got any uh, better ideas for uh, people that Flint could have been, people on that list. Uh, and if you know if that line about loneliness being a flower dying in the desert actually comes from a, a real work of literature. I would love to know about that. Uh, next time, we're going to be back with Memorial. It's a season six episode of Voyager. And I do want to share just as a parting thought that, Glenn, when you conjured up the image of us being bartenders to the writing staff of Strange New Worlds, um, I kind of pictured us like serving the drink, putting it down and like whispering things as we put them <laughs> down. And and we had just been talking about Pygmalion. So now I've decided our new job title is Pygmalion Whisperer. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> it's the, it is my dream job for sure. <laughs> um, but until next time, stay spacey.